Welcome to the All Roads Podcast. We're your hosts, Sam Hahn. And I'm Dr. Sam Kindick. And we are experts in ancient Greece and Rome, here to talk to you to- today about Assassin's Creed Odyssey and the famous people in it. Cue the music. At that, I turned back for Socrates, he said, but saw no sign of him coming after me. So I told them how I myself had come along with Socrates, since he had asked me to dine with them. Very good of you to come, he said, but where is the man? He was coming in just now behind me. I am wondering myself where he can be. Go at once, said Agathon to the servant, and see if you can fetch in Socrates. You, Aristodemus, Take a place by Eryximachus. So the attendant washed him and made him ready for reclining when another of the servants came in with the news that our good Socrates had retreated to their neighbor's porch. There he was standing, and when bidden to come in, he refused. How strange, said Agathon. You must go on bidding him, and by no means let him go. That was from early in Plato's Symposium, a dialogue about love that features our protagonists today, two of them, Socrates and, of course, Alcibiades, uh, two figures that you meet along the way in Ubisoft's 2018 video game Assassin's Creed Odyssey. And Sam, that's what we're talking about today. Yeah. Last week, we talked a bit about the historical recreation of the city of Athens and Greece itself and talked about the ways in which the developers used the archaeological record, the written record of ancient Greece, and even much later sources to create a a pretty good approximation of what it would have been like to live in 5th century Athens. Today, we want to focus on some of the famous people that you meet in this game. And in particular, we want to focus on Socrates and Alcibiades, as Dr. Sam said. Of course, you meet tons of famous people, right? You meet uh, Heracles, the leader of Athens, and his kind of rival, the populist Cleon, fighting for power in Athens. You meet um, Hippocrates. You meet um, Herodotus. Herodotus, exactly. Um, You visit the Palace of Odysseus. There's tons of famous people that you either meet in person in the game or interact with their history. Um, And we could spend hours and hours and hours and many episodes talking about each of these individuals. And maybe one one day we'll come back to these figures in history. But I think when you spend time in Assassin's Creed Odyssey, some of the most memorable characters are Socrates, and Alcibiades, who are linked not only in the game, but also in history. Um, So I'm excited for us to kind of dive in and talk about the different quests that you go on with these characters and also what we actually think about their characterization. What is missing and what did they get right? Um, I'd love to start with Socrates, though. The more famous of the Athenians, um, dear listener, you probably have heard of the famous philosopher. Um, We meet him in the city of Athens, at an ostracism. Uh, Sam, could you give our our listeners a little bit of context about ostracism in ancient Athens? Yeah, sure. This is one of the kind of cool things. I don't know, does it, does it, 
do we get it before the reforms of Cleisthenes in 508, or is it purely an aspect of the democratic process in, in, in Athens? Do you know? I don't. Well, that's a good question. I don't actually know the answer to that. Yeah, we're going to be looking at democracy in Athens a little bit more closely uh, as we get closer to the American presidential election. But basically, uh, I think every year there would be a vote uh, to see if people wanted to ostracize somebody right um and if there was you know a, a certain criteria was met there would then be a vote uh on who should be ostracized and basically what happens when you're ostracized is that you're kicked out of athens for i think 10 years mm-hmm. and you're, yeah. you're not allowed to come back and this is to prevent one person from getting too much power right, right. the romans have something a little bit similar in that after you're a, a consul or a praetor you get you know sent off to, to be a governor somewhere. It, it's a way of sort of getting people who have a stranglehold on the political system sort of out of the way, let other people get a chance. But we get the term ostracism, right, from the actual uh, – the, the, the process of, of ostracizing somebody. And the Greeks didn't have voting machines. They didn't even have mail-in ballots like we have in Colorado. They wrote the names of – the people they're they're voting for, or here the people they're ostracizing, um, on small pieces of broken pottery called ostraca, a single yeah. ostracon. It's really cool. If you go to many museums in Greece, you can actually see um, collections of ostraca with people's names actually written on that that you can see behind the glass. Um, a very interesting, you know, you know, reuse of broken material in a you know voting system. And I think the other interesting thing about ostracism, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but it always had to be between two people. Um, and so if you wanted to ostracize somebody, you had to figure out who is the other person that could also be ostracized. And sometimes it could go really the wrong way where you really want to get rid of one person, but you have to put up another. And that second person actually is the one who gets ostracized in the end. Um, a very interesting system. And as this game suggests, not all that difficult to rig. Right. We have all sorts of different protections in our elections here in the U.S. in the modern day. But, you know, in ancient Greece, it was kind of as simple as switching the bags of broken pieces of pottery uh, to rig things uh, in your favor. And I believe we even have indications that there are various ostracisms that are, in fact, rigged in in ancient history. Um, If you're interested, we can dive a little bit more into this and talk about it in our democracy episode. Yeah, I think Uh, there is there are plenty of examples, again, also on the Roman side of just sort of rampant corruption and cheating yeah. in every every sort of quote-unquote democratic process i mean that's one of the reasons i think the romans and the greeks feel so relatable right they feel so real so human because they are of course but they you know they cheated just like the rest of us <laughs> um so in the game, though, you attend a an ostracism that is going on uh, because the leader of Athens, Pericles, has asked you to rig it so that his friend um, and uh, and Exagoras is cast out of the city for 10 years, which you later learn is to protect him from um, people who are kind of plotting against his life in the city. Uh, but you go about this. You steal and replace the ostraca, and you run into Socrates, who basically says, is it right for you to have done this? 
what right do you have to decide whether or not a man should continue living in the city where he's spent his whole life, has his family, has all of his possessions? And uh, you all get into an interesting conversation about the love of knowledge, um, which feels like a very Socrates sort of thing uh, to do um, as a as a lover uh, of wisdom um, that Socrates would ask you, uh, what do you value more Um and you can get into an interesting conversation with Socrates as you do throughout this game, as you continue to run into him all across um, the landscape of ancient Greece. Yeah. And of course, you know, arguing about love is what the symposium uh, where that initial uh, quotation came from is all about. And of course, uh, I don't know. Do you, you like Greek philosophy, Sam? I have never, I, I just don't think I had the, the intellectual ram the power the you know it's just i don't know i feel dumb when i read philosophy i i do you know i i do enjoy the kind of intellectual side of like greek philosophy and the theory and i was very much educated within the socratic method um one of the first pieces of ancient literature i ever read personally was plato's apology i think that was probably the first mm. ancient text that i read in his entirety uh, in middle school. And so Plato has a very near and dear place in my heart. And so I very much love Socrates and enjoy reading the, the platonic dialogues as esoteric as they can be at times. Um, I, I do, I do appreciate, um, you know, questioning what does it mean for someone to be just um, is a common question that Socrates asks in a lot of these platonic dialogues. And I think it's a really important question. And I think the questions that Plato presents through the mouth of Socrates in those dialogues are very much worth us considering today. Um, I'm, I think you know that I'm a big fan of the Republic, which we'll talk a little bit more in just a second. Um, so yes, Greek philosophy, Plato, Aristotle in particular, um, are, are authors that I continue to read to this day and, and very much appreciate. Well, you'll have to be our guide then uh, for much of this. Though so I, I uh, you know, one of the things I like about Assassin's Creed Odyssey is, and we talked about this a little bit in the last episode, but they've really leaned into the the sort of giving you choice. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure that choices necessarily influence what quests you can or can't do, but they, at least in these side quests, like we get with so Socrates, but they definitely influence the dialogue back and forth between. Yeah. Um, so I feel like in my, uh, the, the, the Cassandra that I am playing this time through, uh, you know, she has a very, well, I think she's, I think she's actually appreciates Socrates now, but she is, I always choose the sassiest, uh, response for everything <laughs> yeah. involving Socrates. So I can talk about some of those decisions because I'm I'm guessing you probably chose the like more noble, uh, you know, respectful route. I uh, I always you know beat people up and and threaten people when I can. It is it, it is fun how much choice they do give you in this game, and I think this will also play into like how Socrates is characterized because Socrates is, you know, not the only person going around Athens talking philosophy at this time. Right. Um, there are a, a ton of people called the, the sophists at this time, which were mostly kind of just like, I think today we would use the term debate Lords 
as a a descriptor of them people who were is that really, a term really... oh have you not word? heard this yeah debate i've never words, heard debate that bros. No, I don't... um people who are really good at rhetoric who can kind of win the argument no matter which way it is being presented they're just clever enough with their words that they're able to argue any point and you know and went around athens oftentimes teaching young men how to do the same and you know, gained influence gained power gained money won sexual favors out of this um and socrates is oftentimes in the ancient context described as a sophist but his student plato which is where we get a lot of the descriptions of Socrates and his thought very much pushes against it. And a lot of these dialogues are actually Socrates debating sophists and actually trying to get beyond the rhetoric and actually get to the, the root of the, the question and the problem and actually try and discover some nugget of truth in the conversation as opposed to just winning a debate. But I'm getting away from I, myself. I, I want to later, I'm going to talk about Plato, but just on the, the idea of the debate Lords and the sophists, I mean, this is something that the Greeks were very anxious about in the second half of the fifth century, mm-hmm. right? There's this this fear, and you know, we might say, well, surely it's good to to train oneself to be a lord of the debate, um, a master debater, and you know, you because if you can control argument and logic and reason, this is all beneficial. But for the Greeks, there was this 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 fear, right? If you could take the lesser argument, right, as Aristophanes mm-hmm. puts it in his his play, the the clouds, right. If you could take the lesser argument and defeat the greater argument, right, take the worst set of facts and make that seem better than the better set of facts, it sort of undermines everything, right? Because you no right. longer know who to trust, right? right. If you know, if, if if everyone tells the truth, you can sort of make your assessments and make your judgments on, and you know, based on you know the actual facts as they. They present themselves, but if people can manipulate perception of the facts, then you don't know what to do. Um, and, and anyone who is not trained um, to be a, a sophist or trained in rhetoric is at this extreme disadvantage. Right. So it's it, it, it it's something we see in, in in Greek literature and history across the board. So it's a fascinating phenomenon. And it was also kind of like tied into, I think, the question of like democracy as like a political form, too, for the Greeks, right? Socrates, spoiler alert, uh, is put to death by the Athenians. Um, He's put on trial and sentenced to death for a variety of reasons that we'll touch on in just a second. But he kills Um, himself, right? He's exactly. Um, And you're related to that. There is also this idea that like, related to this like sophistry like is democracy actually a good form of government and the greeks are kind of torn on this the spartans famously no absolutely not we can't have the athenians around here they could spread the idea of democracy that could destabilize sparta and whatnot and even socrates has a little bit of an anti-democratic streak in him you can see this when he talks about philosopher kings and this need for people who are experts in kind of statecraft to be guiding the state and this kind of fear that if it is too easy to convince the people with bad arguments or good arguments with bad facts, um, is this actually a good form of government? Um, which, you know, is a conversation that I think people still have to this day. And Socrates is very much involved with and is kind of tied to some of the negative feelings about him in democratic Athens. But let's cut back 
We started with a quote from the symposium. The next time we see Socrates is at a symposium. Again, yes. this kind of dinner party at the abode of Pericles, where we are greeted by kind of all of the brightest minds of Athens in the fifth century. Um, who all's there, Sam? Let's see. I remember, well, it's Pericles' house, first right. of all. So that's that's a big one. And he's talking to Herodotus um, up on the balcony, right? Pericles is like weirdly reclusive and doesn't like parties at his house. Yeah. Um, which I'm not sure if that vibes with what I thought about Pericles or great politicians. But then, uh, right, Socrates is there. I forget who Socrates is talking to. He's talking to Thrasymachus, which Thrasymachus. is this, which famously in Plato's Republic, which is also taking place at a symposium, um, a dinner party. Um, this is the person that kind of kicks off the conversation about what does it mean to be just? And Thrasymachus is the one who says justice is whatever is the advantage for the stronger. Basically, a might makes right definition of justice. The person who is the most powerful gets to set the rules of what is and is not just, which, of course, launches Socrates into a long discussion about what actually makes a good government um, and how do you actually found a city that actually is just for its citizens. And a lot of those themes come up in Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Yeah, um, definitely. Especially if you're, you know, you're a sole figure, a mystheos, right? This like, you know mercenary assassin who just runs around single-handedly changing the tides of war assassinating political figures um and of course you do make decisions along the way so you have to sort of for yourself assess mm -hmm. what's what's just but i also remember and i paid more attention to this conversation because i think i just naturally avoid the philosophers but there is uh the playwright uh euripides was talking to the the comedian the comic playwright aristophanes and they had been talking to the other uh, there's three three big uh tragedians in athens right aeschylus sophocles and euripides aeschylus by this point is dead but sophocles who had been talking to euripides and aristophanes is like sulking in the pantry and he's yeah. like humiliated and it's i don't know that didn't we won't we don't want to linger on that but that that didn't vibe with my you know, the way I think of Sophocles and Sophocles was a big, like he was a very popular, he was a general in Athens. He was a religious yeah. figure. Uh, it was just weird. I mean, that's what, I think that's what makes these Assassin's Creed games. So cool. I mean, that sort of world building that we, we talked a little bit last right. week is that it's peopled with these pe with these characters and whether you mm -hmm. agree or disagree with the way that someone is portrayed, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to go and just like, have a conversation with Sophocles and, and Aristophanes. Yeah, it is. In Euripides is very notably like soft spoken in Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Yeah, until he gets he until kinda, he gets drunk. Until, until he, he gets, gets drunk. drunk. Yeah, <laughs> it is funny. I don't know if that's actually based on any. I, I did not look this up. I'm, I'm not sure that that's based on any sort of characterization. I don't think it is. So. It is funny. They they give them very distinct personalities. Aristophanes clearly fits as like a, a comic playwright he's over the top overly bubbly and i think that's why sophocles is sulking is because he does not like aristophanes yeah which again not sure that that's attested in history uh but very funny like well it's funny because serious person that my mentee is spending too much time with and so i'm yeah. just gonna you know sulk in the kitchen but of course uh i think 
Aristophanes makes more fun of Euripides, at least in the plays that we have. I mean, think about yeah. something like the frogs or mm-hmm. uh, the Thesmophorias who's died, the women at the Thesmophoria. There's lots of making fun of Euripides in Aristophanes. And making fun of Socrates. Famously, Aristophanes yes. has a play called The Clouds in which Socrates descends from the, the heavens in a basket and is kind of depicted as a loon, as a sophist, as a natural philosopher who's pretty laughable. And, you know, Plato will even say in his Apology, which is his recount of the trial of Socrates, that Socrates will basically, uh, that that Socrates's you know, public in- image is so tarnished by the clouds that when he's actually put on trial, the Athenian people really can only remember the version that like Aristophanes has is made of of Socrates. So we have the symposium. You, did, oh yeah. Did you ahead. make did you make Aristophanes throw up? I did not. No. I gave him oh. the good one. I gave him the one yeah. that he likes. I gave him the other one and it's it was, I mean it was it was weird just he just like bent over and like threw up then like the conversation resumed. Uh which is a reminder that I don't know the ancient world's dirtier than the modern world right i mean the romans famously like would eat at times until they would throw up then they maybe eat some more uh so i don't know things like that sort of just they 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 set the scene right again this world building yeah but the last person at the the party and i i, I know you want to talk about him eventually yeah right is alcibiades yeah and he's not uh he's not out amongst the guests for most of it no you know, Alcibiades is an important character. He's quite young when Assassin's Creed Odyssey is set, right? We're in 431. Alcibiades will become a very famous general, a very important political figure in Athens a little bit later into the Peloponnesian War. But here we have him kind of in his early days. He's a student of Socrates, um, which will turn out to be not great for Socrates, again, when he's put on trial. Uh, but here we have the young Alcibiades, and he's under the guardianship of Pericles since his father died. So there's a little bit of conversation of the fact that Alcibiades has, you know, been living in this house, very familiar with Pericles, yada, yada, yada. Uh, But we run into him as he's about to start a three-way, a four-way in one of the rooms and they've run out of lube. And so he asks you to fetch some olive oil so they can. All I know is there's a goat. There was a goat in that room. Oh yeah. And there's a goat. It's true. (laughs) And the goat seems to leave uh, at his, you know, earliest opportunity. Yeah. Uh, And this is very much an interesting, you know, depiction of uh, Alcibiades. In history, he is depicted, like, I think Plutarch describes him as being incredibly vain about his appearance and something that he is very much associated with. And there is this impression in Athens that he's a bit of a playboy. He's a bit, uh, yeah, sexually promiscuous. And this is kind of reinforced throughout his history. We'll get into a little bit more about the actual Alcibiades and whatnot. But there are famous moments in which he does have to flee areas of Greece because he is presumed to have slept with important people's wives. And so it kind of has to get out of Dodge. Um, Can I tell you my favorite Alcibiades story from? Yes, please. Which I think uh, shed some light on at least the way that he's presented as a young man in Plutarch. And, you know, Plutarch's writing in the second century CE. So he's writing, you know, hundreds of years after Alcibiades lived. Right. But of course he's, he has access to other sources, but uh, I'll read you the whole, it's, it's just uh, section nine of Plutarch's uh, biography of Alcibiades. 
Alcibiades owned an exceptionally large and handsome dog, which he had bought for 70 minae, and it possessed an extremely fine tail, which he had cut off. His friends scolded him and told him that everyone was angry for the dog's sake. Alcibiades only laughed and retorted, that is exactly what I wanted. I am quite content for the whole of Athens to chatter about this. It will stop them from saying anything worse about me. Right. So it's, it's, which I'm not sure is true. If you cut the tail off of your dog, that's probably not the, the end of things, but it, no. I think it, and it sums up Alcibiades cause it's, he's, he's, he does it as a calculated move. He does this crazy thing. It's a calculated strategic move, but it's ridiculous. And everyone thinks he's crazy and he is crazy. And he's like, I'm crazy, but I'm less crazy than, or I want people to think I'm less crazy and wild than I actually am. Right. Exactly. Um, that's very much how the other quests of his play out in Assassin's Creed Odyssey, right? At one point you're tasked with delivering a package to this like Greek commander and it's, you know, a cast of his penis that it says, you know, to your wife and that gets the commander really upset. Another time perfect you for to, Valentine's day. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect for Valentine's day. Um, another one, you have to sneak into a woman's house and steal her dildo. Um, so, but you know, at the end of the game, you know, Alcibiades will explain to you, oh, all of this was all, you know, political calculated moves to give me access to these commanders and to piss off this politician and yada, yada, yada. So there's a little bit of like the game is playing on that characterization in Plutarch that he is doing these outlandish, wild things um, for, cal for calculated political reasons again it comes from plutarch which you know you have to take plutarch with at least two grains of salt like like yeah you have to you you cannot believe what you read in plutarch it is very much an exaggerated biography of a lot of these very very famous people so i'm not even sure you have a 50 50 shot of it being true you probably have more of like a 30 70 shot of it being true um but, but still, i think it does a, it it captures the you know the, the the sense i mean it's whether right. the the, right. the the dog cutting off the dog's tail story is true it gets to the the core of alcibiades that he is calculated i mean he's a he's a a, a very good strategist right which is why he during the right. peloponnesian war uh in turn fights for the athenians the spartans the persians and then the athenians yeah. um so he's he's sought after but he's also eccentric i mean he's calculating he's eccentric and I think it's, you know, it's it, it's kind of like the old P.T. Barnum saying, right? I don't care what you write about me as long as you spell my name right. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the like, you know, whether or not Alcibiades is actually, you know, having a threesome with a goat or not. He wants you to think that he is. And he right. wants you to to talk about that. And I think we, do, you know, we get that pretty good in Assassin's Creed. Um, yeah. He's kind of creepy looking, though. His hair, like, really bothers me. It's like... It's gray, like gray, white ish. I'm not sure what that's supposed to be. Did that did that did that bother you? I think it's just to make him stand out so that you always know it's Alcibiades. Like I think it I think that is a a visual cue that's like this guy looks wild and I know exactly who this wild looking guy is. So you can always clock him from, you know, a hundred. He's wearing a away. diaper like half the time, right? He just like yeah. wearing a little diaper. 
So we have this, we have the symposium, we meet um, Socrates again and Alcibiades. And again, I, I noted, you know, Alcibiades is a student of Socrates and kind of throughout Assassin's Creed, Alcibiades is being a little bit playful about trying to get Socrates to have sex with him, um, which I think is kind of like up in the air. It was not uncommon for these sorts of teachers to have relationships with their students. I think in the symposium, Alcibiades, it is it is strongly implied or even stated that they do have a sexual relationship with each other. But also Socrates is a little bit more restrained than I think um, Alcibiades would, would want him to be. Um, and for sure in Assassin's Creed Odyssey, Socrates is not entertaining any of Alcibiades advances kind of kind of jokingly pushing him off um, which again I'm not sure is exactly what we would expect from history but um, is an interesting look at there but it's dynamic. younger right and so the, I mean Assassin's Creed right. we were talking about this before we went on air trying to figure out like when exactly this takes place and, and the, 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 the timeline has been compressed right but um, the, the, the Peloponnesian War breaks out in 431 and Socrates is born in 785, I want to say. Um, so he's not that old, I mean, by modern standards. Um, but later, um, before Alcibiades gets sort of run out of Athens uh, after a controversial uh, sacrilegious act takes place, the breaking of the yeah. Herms. Um, by that point, Socrates is older. I think the way that it's often described is that like Socrates is like this old, creepy, not creepy, but ugly, yeah. unclean old man. And it's just sort of drives home the like the absurdity of Alcibiades, this handsome, charismatic, uh, you know, lover of everybody that, that he's trying to get with the old, ugly Socrates. So he must uh, he must have something because the Greeks usually think if you're good on the inside, you're good on the outside. Uh, if you're bad, you know, vice right. versa. So the fact that Socrates is good, but also ugly, uh, good on the inside, bad on the outside is sort of a head scratcher, I think, for, for a lot of the way the Greeks thought. Yeah, definitely. I will say I'm, I am I looked up Socrates's date of birth and it seems like it's more around 470. So, again, okay. I, I'm not sure that he would be as old as he's actually depicted in again i guess he's in his 40s ish again i think what what i see is like people knew socrates as a philosopher when he was about in his 40s that's when he was like kind yeah. of most well known so i guess we we are kind of around that time um in assassin's creed odyssey um we kind of have a one last interaction between Socrates and Alcibiades in the game. And then they kind of go their separate ways. Uh, you run into them outside of the temple of Hephaestus in Athens, where Alcibiades, again, kind of flirting with Socrates and then asks you to kind of rig the citizenship um, for somebody who is trying to become an Athenian. And so, you know, you do a classic assassin thing where you kill some guards and you swap out some papers and then go, kind of bully a guy to be a witness to let this person become an Athenian. And of course you get into a classic Socrates conversation where Socrates is like, do you think a good man, like an, a, a bad man can become good and a good man can, can be, become bad. And what is the nature of good and bad? And is, you know, someone's character set in stone or not? Like, do you give people second chances? A very kind of Socrates uh, 
conversation. Uh, and then these two characters uh, kind of diverge, um, which makes sense. Well, should we uh, should we take a break there, Sam, and then uh, talk about some more Socrates quests? Yeah, I'd love back? for yeah, I'd love for us to talk also a little bit about what do we actually think. Now we've seen some of the quests and how the game depicts. I think we should talk about how right do they get these characters. All right. Well, we'll be back in a few. All right, well, we're back. Uh, and Sam, you are going to lead us in a series of uh, questioning, leading questions with sort of circular, nonsensical logic about whether the Socrates we get in Ubisoft's Assassin's Creed Odyssey is true to the Socrates that we get elsewhere. And, and maybe it's also worth noting that, of course, we don't have the writings of Socrates. We only have sort of, I don't know, can we call it Socrates fan fiction uh, yeah. in, in Plato? Yeah, that's definitely the case, right? Plato and then another author, Xenophon, are kind of the two main sources we have for Socrates and his thought. Again, famously left no written works, unlike other philosophers of, of the time. And again, there's lots of debate, you know, is the version of Socrates we get in Plato accurate to the real Socrates? There's also a little bit of conversation like, how real is Socrates at all? Um, that I think is, you know, not super seriously considered, considering, you know, Aristophanes has Socrates as a character in one of his plays and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, everything we get from Socrates is secondhand. I, I am conflicted about how I feel about his characterization in Assassin's Creed Odyssey, to be perfectly honest. Um, okay. I really enjoy the conversations I have with him I, I feel like the game pushes him more into the sophist kind of vein of, of thinking. There's oftentimes it feels like he is just asking questions. Again, I feel like this is the conversation you have with him a bunch in the game. He's like, I don't have a position. I'm just asking you so I can hear what you have to think, which in some ways doesn't feel super Socrates-y to me. Because Socrates is very interested in asking questions, getting people's honest responses, and then questioning the logic. Does this actually in consistently hold internally with your worldview? And kind of trying to drill down to the nitty gritty. But the Socrates in Assassin's Creed, it seems a little bit more just like asking questions for the sake of asking questions. And isn't that interesting? And doesn't that make you want, make you think? And there's a little bit less of that drilling down to be like, I am very interested in getting to a fundamental truth here and a little bit more like, Oh, we're just talking like who cares what the answer is. I just want to hear what you think. Huh? Like that raises a question for me. And I think there's a little bit less of that, which is hard to do in a video game. I don't know how you do a full Socratic dialogue, but I feel like you don't get more than Socrates is the guy who asks annoying questions, which to me, I feel like is a little bit of a, a loss in the video game. I wish there was more of, Socrates and maybe Socrates should be more unlikable. Maybe that that's I'll also say that Socrates, I think, is too jovial and I like spending time with him too much. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that that's really the impression lots of ancient people had. I think a lot of people did not like Socrates and maybe Socrates should have been more annoying um, than he actually was. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. And again, you know, the way that Ubisoft made this game where you have decisions, at least in dialogue, um, you know, some of the websites that you can go to, like the Assassin's Creed, like Wiki, it'll show you the dialogue for all the quests. Oh, okay. And you can see, um, yeah, so Assassin's Creed.fandom.com is where I am now. And it gives you the the text of all the quests, which is cool. But then you can click through the different options and you can see that, you know, often you'll have an interaction with Socrates and you can decide whether you're like, you know, this person's just, this person should be punished. This person, you know, the, I'm not sure. And like, no matter what you click, you're never, it's never like Socrates is like, correct. Have a good day. Right. No matter what you click, there's always, he's always then pushes you further. He always challenges you. So like in a sort of meta sense, it does feel like he is just talking for the sake of talking right. and, and asking these questions. Um, and Socrates but, in the dialogues is never like, you got it right. That's, I mean, he sometimes does, but like in a facetious way, he's like, oh, right. you got it. But that also makes me wonder, yada, yada, yada. But right. there are times when people say, okay, Socrates, you're so smart. Like, what is justice? And then he does the whole Republic, right? And then he's like, <laughs> here's, here's my theory of how justice works. And like, he is asking questions to like, uncover like the difficult fundamental truths that underlay these ideas. But is also interested in being like, okay, here's what I would propose. Here's how I would construct it. And oftentimes it's a metaphor. So it's like, well, what do you do with the metaphor? But yeah, there's there's less of a, a a Socrates with theories and more it's just Socrates with questions. Um, Though I guess um, I don't. Did you did you do the quest line where Socrates is in jail and you have to like get him out? No, I did not. Yeah, so that's it was like I I diverged from the quest line I saw on the one website and somehow found another quest line, but Socrates is arrested because a bunch of people are accusing him of stuff. And you talk to his wife to Zanthippe and she tells you he, he went to a party and like didn't come home. And so you have mm. to go investigate, but she's like, you know, she, she has a very interesting relationship with Socrates Yeah, and you, you go in there and you're like, I didn't even know he had a wife. And she's like, of course he talks all day, but like no one even knows he's like married. Um, which is like I think accurate to the I think he's known as kind of a deadbeat dad yeah uh, in antiquity yeah and I don't know during that quest line I think there are a couple moments that both further what you're saying where you get the sense where he just like talks and talks and talks but I think there's also some nuggets of of interest Um, so you go and you talk to him in jail of course you've got to like kill a bunch of people even go talk to him. Right. And then he's like, you know, she's like, I'm going to get you out. I don't know why she, he doesn't just walk out. You just killed all the guards, but he's like, you got to get me off the hook by uh, talking to a bunch of other sophists and those sophists, you know, make them help me even though they hate me. And you're like, fine, I'll mm-hmm. go do that. And you go talk to these sophists and they're like, we hate him. He's so annoying. And then Cassandra, at least as I selected it, I I trick them with my own philosophy mm-hmm. um, and convince them to help uh, Socrates. And so they agreed to do it. But sitting there on the on the ledge is this little boy um, who it turns out is Plato. 
Um, oh, okay. So it's it's like little Plato, and of course it's Plato who will be the um, the person, the student of Socrates, who will give us, you know, as you said a second ago, Sam, pretty much everything we already have. Right. Um, but his his name is his his real name isn't Plato. That's like his like nickname he got. He was a big wrestler. Um, he was a girthy guy. Um, uh, Aristocles was his was his name. So you meet this little Aristocles, and he's like, "I want to be just like Socrates." And yeah, I thought that was kind of cool. But when you go back, well, then you have to go kill a bunch of priests and steal evidence to get Plato off the hook or uh, Socrates off the hook. And you also meet one of his other students, and you have to go into a tomb. I don't know how much you've been in tombs in this game, Sam. I've been in a couple of tombs. I hate it because there's just snakes. Every time yeah. you walk into yeah. a room, mm-hmm. there's a snake yeah. or two. And first of all, I hate snakes. Me too. It's the exact same thing uh, from Assassin's Creed Origins, right? Every time you go into a tomb, and there's a bunch of them in Egypt. They're just snakes. And they don't, I mean, they can hurt you. They can kill you. Um, but they're more just annoying because then you have yeah. to like, you have a torch and you have to throw the torch or drop the torch and shoot them or like it's, you know. Anyway, I hate snakes, but you, <laughs> you rescue this uh, student of, of Socrates and he's like, how do I know you're, you really, you know, know Socrates. You're not just like pretending. And the response I chose, which I think sums up Socrates in this game is like, oh, I know him. Yeah. He just talks and talks and doesn't stop talking and asks these, all these stupid questions just so he could talk some more about stuff that doesn't make any sense. Just keeps talking and talking and talking. And I was like, that feels right to me. And it, of course, convinces his student, who then gives you some notes. He took notes on Socrates' lectures. So you've got the actual teachings of Socrates in your hands, something that we don't have in, you know, sort of the the sort of preserved texts of antiquity. But when you eventually do rescue Socrates, you're like, oh, here's you know, this scroll that has your teachings from your student. And Socrates immediately throws it into the fire. And he's like, I didn't ask anybody to take notes. And then he talks about how mm-hmm. he had a teacher. And in Egypt, they said that like writing was the sort of the combination of memories and wisdom. And he's like, I don't want my stuff written down because then people will just read it and pretend they're smart and not get real wisdom. And then I thought of Plato, who then you know writes right. all this stuff down. But I also thought about some of the insufferable, philosophically inclined people I've met in my life, who just read Plato and then pretend that they're smart. Right. And it that seemed to sort of, you know, it, it made me ask, right? Who is this Socrates that we have in antiquity? And you know, is is every iteration of Socrates? fan fiction, right? I mean, we have Socrates in Plato. We have Socrates in Xenophon. We have Socrates in Assassin's Creed. We have Socrates in uh, Mary Renault's The Last of the Wine, which I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. But can we know Socrates? Or is Socrates sort of like an idea? What do you think? I mean, this is like... (laughs) This is am the I not, question. Am I not the first person to ask this question? Yeah, I know. This is like the question about Socrates. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think I think the safest thing whenever you talk about Socrates is like 
Plato's characterization of Socrates is like the careful way that people usually say it. And that's kind of what I was trained up in. And that's my inclination is like Socrates didn't say this. This is Plato's use of Socrates to make whatever philosophical point that Plato is trying to make. Right. Plato is not just a, a historian of Socrates's thought. Plato is his own philosopher doing his own work and he's doing it through Socrates as like a mouthpiece. Like that's very much how I think about Socrates. And I think most people do. I mean, it also is a fundamental question to any of the study of classics is like, how do we know anything about anyone? Right. How, you know, we have this characterization of Alcibiades that we get from Plutarch. How much can we rely on it? It's so hard. All of these authors have their biases, right? We also get, you know, Alcibiades in Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War, right? There is this question of like, Thucydides is also a general and a politician at the same time as Alcibiades. Like, how are, you know, their interplay, their relationship, like, surely they knew each other or aware of each other, or maybe even friends, like, how much does that actually influence the characterization, right? It becomes this kind of impossible thread to un untangle. And so I think classicists, we oftentimes lean back on, here's how it's presented in this specific text, but it's presented differently here. And so we talk about these more as this author's use of that character. And we use it to inform a general picture of maybe what that person would have been like, which is kind of unsatisfying. I think, I think people want like, here are the things that this person did. This is why they made those decisions. And I think classicists as we're trained are very much hesitant to assign any sort of motive to almost anyone in history, because we're so aware of the rhetoric of the text where we're getting this information. So in light of that, I mean, so how, how critical do we want to be of the, the depiction we get here in Assassin's Creed Odyssey? Sure. Not too critical. Not too yeah. critical. Yeah. I feel like I Socrates you. I like went in a circle and got you. It's true. It's true. Um, Let's turn to Alcibiades then, unless you have anything else you want to say about Socrates. No, just that he talks a lot. Yeah. Uh, Alcibiades is a really interesting character in the Peloponnesian War in history as, you know, we get him presented to us by various authors, as I was just saying, right? He gains prominence in Athens. It becomes this very important general later on. It's also worth noting, like, in earlier conflicts with Sparta, he's actually fighting alongside Socrates. Like, he becomes a student of Socrates, but also they were, like, messmates together, like, in the in battle and whatnot and socrates saves alcibiades life in one battle and then alcibiades saves socrates life in another it is this kind of interesting like socrates j didn't just do philosophy apparently he also was a, a soldier which is kind of funny to think about socrates running around the battlefield talking about justice i've got more to say about this yeah in a second too uh but let's 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 talk about the historical socrates or alcibiades yeah, uh, and then I'll, then I can talk about some some more fictional Alcibiades and some Socrateses. Yeah, um, Doctor Sam alluded to this a little bit, but again, Alcibiades switches sides a bunch during the Peloponnesian War. There's this very famous moment in the Peloponnesian War where the Athenians they go for an a go for broke 
plan to attack the island of Sicily, which is the ball that the boot of Italy is kicking, you know, a big old island in the middle of the Mediterranean. Um, and this is very much something that Alcibiades is for. This is going to kind of turn the tide, take out a, a important station for the Spartans and put Athens back in the winning position. And he fights really hard for this. And he is appointed one of the generals to lead this very important expedition. But Sam, the very, the night before the expedition is about to take off. What happens? Well, somebody or somebody's is very naughty. Yeah. They go around the city and they have all around the city of Athens. Uh, and in particular, I think at sort of entrances and some crossroads, right? They've got these mm-hmm. little statues called Herms, which mm-hmm. are, they're like a pillar. And on the the top, there's like the head of Hermes. And then the, he's got a big old erect willy sticking out. And yeah. somebody went through and karate chopped all the willies off in the night. Yeah. It's called it's called the desecration of the Herms, which is a, a wild term. But again, it, this is a huge scandal. You're not supposed to whack off the, the penises from whack off the willies. Yeah, from from these these important religious, you know, markers in the city. And everybody gets in a tizzy, and Alcibiades and his kind of crew are blamed. And it becomes this whole uproar. You know, Alcibiades is like, I didn't do it. Let's have a trial right now. Um, but basically, he becomes persona non grata in Athens. And so when they kind of set out for the Sicilian expedition, he kind of just skips town. He's basically removed from his post and he leaves and defects to Sparta. Uh, and he goes to Sparta and says, hey, I'll help you all defeat the Athenians because I'm no longer welcome in Athens because they think I did this naughty thing. Um, I think it's a bit of a lie. Like, I don't think he actually knows as much about Athens and their strategy as Sparta hopes. He helps them do some important moves in the war, but also has to leave Sparta because, uh-oh, people think that the the... Sparta has two kings. They have a dual monarchy. And one of these kings gives birth to a son who people think looks oddly like Alcibiades. And people are like, did Alcibiades sleep with the king's wife? And so Alcibiades has to skip town again and has to flee from Sparta and goes to Persia. And then he spends a lot of time in Persia trying to convince them to bankroll um, the Spartans in the Peloponnesian War before he actually ends up back at Athens. Um, Can we back up for a second, Sam? I'm confused, yeah. right? Yeah. And Alcibiades, as we've talked about him in Assassin's Creed, he like walks around in a diaper and has like orgies with goats, right. and you mm-hmm. know he he steals dildos from people. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would thrive in Sparta, right? Notorious for their like rigidity. And, you know, no creature comforts. And Alcibiades seems like the kind of guy who, you know, has a feather bed and, you know, has a pillow top on his mattress and doesn't just sleep on the ground in the dirt and like battle wolves and steal food. Right. I mean, you know what I'm going to say. Is this an accurate depiction of Sparta and actually how life was? (laughs) That's um, what the Athenians tell us. Yeah, we I have know. to believe them. 
this is one of the difficult things, right, in doing any sort of ancient history is we get uh, the accounts that we get are very much one sided. Um, as much as Thucydides tries to tell us in his history that he tried to get good information from all different sides, um, it's hard to imagine that his biases as an Athenian don't kind of put him at odds with the the Spartans and how good of information can he get about Sparta. Again, we don't know a ton about the Spartans. Most of the literature we have is Athenian. It is in the Athenian dialect. Um, but funny enough, some of the only Spartan poetry that survives to this day are these lyric poems that young girls would dance to. And it's kind of about love and about flowers. And it's like, it's very kind of like, happy right yeah i know it is it is wild you know sparta is different than athens they have different concerns they have a different political structure um you know the societal norms there is this you know emphasis on the militarism not that there wasn't a lot of emphasis on militarism in athens but at the same time it isn't just a you know forgive the expression a spartan place to live boom um what it reminds me of i mean it, it it feels a lot like you know, I, I, I'm not sure that, mo- you know, sort of modern analogies are always fruitful, but it feels very much like, you know, the West and the Soviet Union, right? The, you know, sure. the, yeah. the America and Britain versus the Soviet Union. And not so much to say that one is good and one, you know, whatever, but just the sort of the way that I think, and, and we didn't live, we're not this old, we didn't live through the propaganda but what you see in like the 50s and 60s and 70s is a sort of portrayal of what, you know, in, in right. America, what what we think is happening in the Soviet Union and vice versa. I mean, from what I've read, you know, what the sort of the propaganda that people are hearing in the Soviet Union about what's happening in America. Um, and so it's very much a sort of one sided history right. where you have this, you know, you have this like two system, two very different political systems, but sort of a two system world. So I don't know. It feels kind of if it, it feels similar, but yeah, it's hard to say what uh, right. You know what's what Sparta is really like because they didn't write that much other than flowery girl poetry. And you can't really go and visit Sparta nowadays. There's not much of an archaeological site there, and you know Sparta has a very interesting history that we don't have to get too deep into right now. But like maybe another time, another time, another time. But Sparta kind of fizzles out in antiquity. Um, Sparta is obsessed with it's kind of like having a pure bloodline of warriors and they basically tank their, you know, they, they can't replenish their population. And so throughout time, they just dwindle and dwindle and dwindle until they're kind of just a sideshow that people go and they go see the really buff guys at Sparta, but they become so small that they just kind of disappear. And there's not much left from ancient Sparta for us to actually go and visit it and learn about. I think you mentioned to me one of the few actually buildings that we know about in Sparta is a theater, which also kind of undercuts the idea of them being this purely what? military. I don't know stick. if I don't know if there was a theater there. I know in Assassin's Creed you can go. Oh, and there's a theater there, which I didn't think was right because we often talk about Greek tragedy, but we should really talk about Athenian tragedy or Attic tragedy. Sure, I don't. Yeah, so I mean, you know, we talked about this last week. Right. They're, they they've done their homework on a lot of the archaeological sites. I think about what to have and where to have it. The you know, the minutiae of the artistic programs and decoration, you know, is not always there. Uh, all the tombs have like um uh, Minoan like motifs throughout mm-hmm. them. But 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's something to look into, or yeah, we know, should look into that. Our our our, our Spartan uh, listeners, uh, reach out. Let us know if yeah. we're misrepresenting your your people. Um, because that would be. I mean, that would be just interesting whether there was a theater because that's also has democratic associations. Yeah, I think we should wrap up with talking about the trial of Socrates. Unless you have any other interesting anecdotes about Alcibiades that we should touch on. No, I do want to talk about my book though. My do my bo- yes, book report. Please. But yeah, let's let's talk about let's talk about you want to talk about that before Socrates the trial or do you want to uh let's let's do the trial and then you can talk about your book. How about that? Um old. famously Athens loses the Peloponnesian War. Uh spoiler alert for people who aren't aware of the history. Sparta wins and they kind of set up this kind of oligarchy in Athens to kind of like take care of things in the absence. Cause they don't really want to like be in Athens and rule it. Um, and it, these, these guys are referred to as, as the, the 30, right. And among the 30 is one of Socrates's students. Um, Athens, the Athenians hate this oligarchy, so they revolt against the 30 and Sparta intervenes. And there's kind of this back and forth where like the Athenians are trying to restore democracy and pushing back against these people who have been put in place by Sparta. And Sparta is always trying to manage Athens in this kind of temporary time. And in this context is when Socrates is put on trial and he's charged with two things. One, he's charged with impiety, not worshiping the gods because he had some kind of unconventional ways of talking about the gods and also kind of like philosophical ideas and whatnot. We get all of this from Plato. Uh, but Sam, do you remember what the second charge that Socrates is put on trial for? Corrupting the youth. Corrupting the youth. Uh, and this is where we kind of come back to Alcibiades. Um, a lot of people look at the trial of Socrates as Socrates, you're this teacher and some of the worst people we've ever met were your students. Alcibiades hated him, betrayed us, stabbed us in the back, like constantly Weird. switching sides, desecrated the Herms. And then um, Critias, this guy who was part of, you know, the the, the 30 tyrants, uh, was also one of your students. And like, it seems like you did a, do a terrible job teaching people to be morally upright Athenians. And again, ties into this idea of like some of Socrates' thought being somewhat anti-democratic. And so there is this kind of like disdain for Socrates in Athens, which results in him being put on trial largely as punishment for producing such awful students that, you know, Athenians largely blame for their loss to the Spartans and the loss of democracy. Um, And this is very much, you know, what results in Socrates, you know, um, drinking the hemlock in the end when he is sentenced to death, um, which I think is just I, I think is an interesting, you know, piece of history um, and I think gives some interesting flavor to Alcibiades and just how interconnected some of these famous people's lives were in ancient Athens in the fifth century. Well. Can I do my book report now? Yes, please. Have you ever read anything by Mary Renault? I don't believe I have. I think you would like it. 
Okay. Um, we've talked about Madeline Miller off air. We've talked a little bit on air. Um, but and you've never read, you've never finished reading, right? A Madeline Miller book. No, I, I started seriously, but I did not finish it. You started it. Well, we'll we'll read those and we'll talk about them at some point. But Great. this is like I understand Madeline Miller having read Mary Renault. I've I've been aware of mm-hmm. her. Um, she was uh, an author. She started writing about the Greek world in the fifties, and I think she wrote until she died in the eighties. Um, but her her writing about the Greek world focuses on these same sex relationships. Um, male same-sex relationships in the ancient world. Um, she herself was gay, and she she left Britain to live in South Africa because it was there was lesser of like homophobic and just sort of anti-gay laws in in South Africa. Um, but she okay. was you know this this master explorer of sort of she writes a lot about Alexander the Great. Um, but her first historical Greek novel is the book that that I read, The Last of the Wine which focuses on sort of the relationship between two young Athenians or one one's younger than the other. Um, but the main character is a guy named Alexia. So it already reminded me of Alexios from uh, yeah. Assassin's Creed, but it, it, it starts in four fifteen, and it just sort of, it felt so much like Assassin's Creed. Cause you're like in Athens during the Peloponnesian war, you're a student of Socrates. You meet all these other students. Like the the main character is friends with um, other students of Socrates. You've got Xenophon, uh, Crito, Phaedo, um, Alcibiades is sort of running around in the background, and it 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 just felt like the same kind of thing hmm. where you're like you're there. You meet the famous people. You run and you like fight and you take part in this sort of you know battle. Uh, and it's, it's a beautiful portrayal of, of Greece and it's, you know, it's, I don't know. I think, like I said, I think you would really like it. Um, it's, it's, it's written in the fifties. So it's, it's a denser book than I think, you know, if you go to the Barnes and Nobles, if Barnes and Nobles even exists anymore and just buy like a, you know, a paperback off the bookshelf there at the airport or something. I mean, it's thick and it's, it's rich and it's got philosophical, you know, strains running through it. But also this like history and this development of this this relationship between these two young Athenian men. Um and I don't know, it just it just really reminded me of Assassin's Creed, which is to say a good thing about both. I mean, this this sense of deep world building, where it's mm-hmm. this immersive, um immersive world. And it's, you know, obviously, or maybe not obviously, obviously obviously uh, Madeline Miller's book, the song of Achilles is about the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus. Um, and I just saw so much of that in Mary Renault. I was like, I understand where Madeline Miller came from. And I'm sure she has read um, everything by, by Mary Renault. And I'm, I'm looking forward to reading some more, but uh, when you get a chance, check it out. I think that uh, you won't be distracted by the the mythological references like I know Cersei um, offered for you because this is so you'll, you maybe you'll go to Thucydides. You'll just read all Thucydides. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, okay, can you say the author and the book title one more time for our listeners? Sure, it, it's Mary Renault and it's spelled R E N A U L T. Okay, and the book's called The Last of the Wine. The Last of the Wine by Mary Renault. All right, yeah, nineteen fifty six. Yeah, 
Well, dear listener, we've come to the end of this episode of the All Roads podcast. We hope you've learned something about Alcibiades and Socrates. But if you know more than us and we got something wrong, why don't you shoot us an email at allroadspod at gmail.com. That's also a great place to let us know what you're interested in listening to, give us feedback on the show, and just connect. We love hearing from listeners, and we will promise to respond to your email. You can also follow us on Instagram at allroadspod. Um, We're going to be posting memes. We're going to be posting about the show. So if you are worried about missing an episode, just follow us on Instagram, and we'll let you know when a new episode goes up. If you could also stop by Apple Podcasts and drop us a five-star review, leave us a comment talking about why you love the two Sams, the two classic Sams so much, we'd appreciate that as well. Helps more people find the show, helps get eyes on this program, and just gives us the encouragement we need to continue delivering this high-quality, juicy content to your ears week in and week out. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Sam Hahn. And I'm Dr. Sam Kindick. And if all roads lead to Rome, then why not take a detour with us? Goodbye. Bye.